This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Now, at the half hour, we're going to hear an episode of The Big Show. You know, by the early 1950s, sponsors were beginning to abandon radio for television. But nothing on the small screen had the class and sophistication of NBC's The Big Show. Although Mistress of Ceremonies, Tallulah Bankhead, and her guests from the world of entertainment were definitely described as upper crust, Miss Bankhead's friendly and accessible manner meant that the program was as entertaining in the parlor as it was in the garage. But that's at the half hour. Right now, we join Sergeant Joe Friday in Another Day in the Streets of L.A. The title of this show is The Big Shot. Sound off for Chesterfield. Chesterfield. First cigarette in America to give you premium quality in both regular and king size brings you Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A nightclub manager has been robbed and killed. The killers made good their escape. Their identity is unknown. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, April 7th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out a homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from R&I, and it was 1.46 p.m. when I got to the interrogation room. Find anything? No, they're checking it now. Mr. Seaton? Yes, sir. I wonder if you'd mind going over all that happened just once more. You might have forgotten something, some little thing that might help us here. All right. Uh, where do you want me to start, where I came in this morning? Yeah, that'll be fine. Well, I came into work about 8.30. Is that the time you usually get there? Uh, yes, sir. It depends what time I catch my bus. Uh, usually it's about then, though. Mm-hmm. Was Mr. Kelby there then? Yeah, he usually gets in around 8 or so, comes in, looks the place over. You know, checks the register, liquor supply in the bar, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to his office to count the money for the night before, get the deposit slip ready for the bank. Uh, that's what he was doing this morning when they came in. You see him come in? Yeah, I was in the kitchen when those two men came in. Mm-hmm. First, I thought they were salesmen. Both of them were dressed kind of nice. A lot of salesmen come in to see Kelby that time in the morning. I didn't figure anything was wrong. They say anything to you, these men? Well, no, not at first. They just stood there looking the place over. I went on peeling my potatoes. 
Then I heard one of them say that he guessed they might as well get it over with, and that's when they pulled the guns and told me it was a stick-up. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, first, I didn't know quite what to do. I asked if they was kidding not to pull jokes like that. I told him if it was a joke, it wasn't very funny. Mm -hmm. And then the big one come over and told me to keep my mouth shut, told me it wasn't any joke. And if I made a sound, they'd just soon blow my head off his look at me. Well, you just know I wasn't about to cause any trouble. Did Mr. Calvi know they were in the place? No, not then. You see, he keeps the door to his office closed when he's counting the money, and I thought about yelling to him, but then when I looked at those two guys, I thought about what they'd said about killing me. I decided not to. What did these men do then? Well, the tall one walked over to the door of Mr. Kelby's office and knocked on the door, and Mr. Kelby said for him to come in. Mm -hmm. And they opened the door and walked in. He saw the guns, asked him what they wanted. Uh, told him they'd better get out of there with those guns, not to cause any trouble. The little one laughed at him and said they wanted the money and that Kelby was the one who shouldn't cause any trouble. I see. Well, the little one started to pick up the money and stuff it in his pockets, and Mr. Kelby told him they better leave it alone, that he had friends who'd take care of him. And the two of them said something I couldn't hear. The little one told Kelby that his friends wouldn't do him any good. And that's when they shot him. Which one actually shot him? Oh, the little one. He's the one who said that thing about the friends. Well, did you try to do anything to help Kelby while all this was going on? Well, what could I do? I told you what those guys said. Kelby wanted to be a hero, save the money, fine. I wasn't his money, belonged to the owner's. Look, I tell you, Sergeant, money isn't worth that much. They nail you into that box, and they don't throw a bank book in. Those guys told me to stay put. I stayed put. What did these two fellas do after they shot Kelby? Well, the big one was real surprised, like he didn't know the little one was going to do it. Yelled at him he was a fool, said he was a stupid fool. Those were his exact words. And the little guy finished getting all the money, and then they ran out. Well, I'll tell you, I was scared to death they were going to kill me, too. It looked like it for a minute, too. How do you mean? Well, when they ran through the kitchen of the back door, a little one stopped and asked what they was going to do about me. I thought, sure, my number was up. The big one said not to make it any worse to leave me alone, then they ran out of the place. And boy, that's when I called the cops and those other guys, you know, out there in the car. And then you came. And the rest you know. Are you sure that you've never seen any one of these men before? No, well, sir, I'm pretty sure I haven't. I wonder if you can give us some kind of a description on these two men. Yeah, the big one was about six feet two, maybe three. Weighed about 180 to uh, 200. Dark. Uh, black curly hair. Mm, anything special about him? The way he talked? Any scars? Anything like that? No, nothing. How was he dressed? Do you remember? Yeah, he had on a gray suit. Uh, Glenn Plaid uh, had kind of red in it, you know? The suit looked expensive. He had black shoes, a uh, maroon tie. Now, how about the smaller one? What did he look like? Oh, he was a little one. Uh, five, six, or seven. Uh, 130, 35 pounds. He was dark, too. Black hair. Cut real short. Uh-huh. How about his clothes? Oh, uh, hat on a blue suit. Uh, looked like a gabardine. Uh, Single-breasted, light blue. Hat on a yellow shirt and dark blue tie. Would you know if there were any marks or scars on him? Oh, yeah. He, uh, he had a little tiny scar right here. On the edge of his mouth. Uh-huh. Made him look like he was smiling all the time. Well, these are very good descriptions, Mr. Seaton. They're going to help us a lot here. Yeah, well, like I said, I wasn't about to be a hero and try to stop these two, but... I knew that you'd want to know what they looked like, so I tried to get all the dope I could. We understand. Now, during the holdup, did either of these men use any names? One of them call the other by a name, anything like that? Oh, let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah, there was something. Uh, while they were in the office, while the little guy was picking up the money, the big one said, hurry up, Deuce. Yeah, he called him Deuce. That was a smaller one? Uh-huh. That's right, Deuce. Joe. Yeah. I'll ask the stats office to make a run on the descriptions and M.O. for us. Check the oddity and the moniker file in the R&I office and see if they can come up with a deuce or anything on the scar. It'll be fine, fine. Thanks a lot. Hey, uh, you got a cigarette, sorry? Yeah. There you go. Thanks. Yeah, how about a match? Sure. There you are. Mm. 
thanks. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. You know, Kelby being shot, I'll probably lose my job. How's that? I'll probably lose my job. The owners will figure, sure, I should have tried to stop those guys. Well, those are the breaks. You said that when these men came in, the door to the manager's office was closed. Is that right? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Kelby always kept it closed when he counted the money, just like I said. Uh-huh. Well, and it looks like the men knew that Kelby would be checking the money at that time, doesn't it? That they mm. knew the layout of the place when they came in. Yeah, you know, I never thought of that. My gosh, that's what must have happened. They sure seemed to know what was going on. Anybody else that was usually around at that time, would you know? Anybody that might have known that the manager worked the accounts at that particular time? No, there's nobody else around. But I, I don't think that Mr. Kelby kept it a secret about the money. Was Kelby conscious at all after he was shot? Do you remember mm, that? Not more than a minute. I ran over to him right after the man left. I wanted to see if I could help, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, he was shot pretty bad. They'd hit him in the stomach. He was all doubled up. Terrible. He looked up at me and said, I know. And his voice kind of trailed off. That's all. Just, I know. Staff's office is making the run, Joe. Got out the local and the APB on the suspects. Nothing that matches the name Deuce and nothing on the scar. Anything from the crime lab, yeah? No. Checked by the office. While I was there, Murphy called from Georgia Street. Anything? Yeah, not good. What? Kelby died and never regained consciousness. With the death of the victim, any information he might have given us about his killers was gone. The one witness to the murder was shown the mug books, but was unable to identify the suspects. Sergeants Gillen Sinus and Danny Galindo canvassed the neighborhood and came up with the driver of a bakery truck who thought he'd seen the killers leave the club. He told them that two men answering the description given us had walked out of the club and gotten into a late model Mercury sedan. He'd not been able to get the license number of the car, however. He was brought into the office and shown the mug books, but he was unable to point out the killers for us. In checking the neighborhood, Encinas and Galindo had come up with a waitress who had seen two men answering the description of the killers loitering around the area. She also described the Mercury sedan, but said that she hadn't paid much attention to it. Because of the smoothness with which the holdup men had operated, indications led us to believe that they had been tipped off by somebody working for the club. Proceeding with this theory, we checked with the club owner, a Mr. John Watson. We found him in the kitchen of his home. Hope you don't mind if I finish up here, officer. No, not at all, Mr. Watson. Guess it seems a little silly to you for a man to be in the kitchen. Kind of a hobby of mine, cooking. Yes, sir. Making a cheesecake. Got some friends coming over tonight. Figured a cheesecake might taste good later in the evening. Yes, sir. You go right ahead. We just have a few questions we'd like to ask you. About the robbery? Terrible thing. I don't understand why Kelby just didn't give him the money. Not give him any reason to shoot. Do you have any idea who might have known that the money would be in the office at the time? And almost everyone that worked in the place. Not making mention of the salesman that came in. Would you hand me that rolling pin over there? Yeah. Here you are. Thanks. Trust to a cheesecake's important. That's one of the reasons I make it myself. Can't stand a soggy crust. <clears throat> are there any of your employees that you think might do a thing like this? Well, that'd be hard to say. I didn't get around the club much. Once in a while, I'd drop by, I'd chat with Kelby. He did the hiring and firing. As long as the place made money, I didn't interfere. Well, the way it looks, it could be very likely that one of the employees did it. The men who pulled the job seemed to know just what they were doing. That's right? Yes, sir. I wonder if we could look through your employment records. Sure, of course. Anything I can do to help out in this thing. Uh, uh, would you hand me that pan over there? Where? Uh, this one? Yeah. Right. Thanks. Get this crust into it, and the cheesecake's about ready. Yeah, sure, you can look at the records. Don't see what that's going to show, but you're welcome to them. Uh, what kind of a car do you drive, Mr. Watson? Uh, new Lincoln. Just got it a couple of weeks ago. Any of your employees drive a late model Mercury that you might know of? No. Oh, like I said, I don't really have a lot to do with the actual operation of the club. Kelby took care of that. Good manager. Did a fine job. Can you tell us how much money they took, sir? No. Near as we can tell, it came to a little over $1,100. Some of that was in checks. You know, that we cashed for our customers. Well, 
That finishes that. Get this together. Now, get it in the oven. Looks good, doesn't it? Yes, sir. <laughs> you should taste it. Set it for 350 for 25 minutes, and that does it. Yeah. Now then, can I get you officers anything? A cup of coffee, something like that? No, sir. If you just arrange for us to check your employment records. Certainly. I'll call the club right away. We'd appreciate that. My brother-in-law's down there looking after things now. He's an idiot. Never can get a job on his own. I only hired him because my wife insisted on it. Yeah, he'd probably botch up the whole thing. Usually does. Well, if you'd call him, sir. How's Kelby's condition? Going to be laid up long? Well, Mr. Kelby's dead, sir. We thought you knew. No, I hadn't heard. Oh, I can hardly believe it. Such a ruthless thing. Just terrible. Kelby was such a good man. Everybody that worked for him liked him. Didn't have an enemy in the world. He had two. We went back five years into the employment records of the club. There were over 200 names. Each of them had to be checked out. Frank and I spent two months running them down. In all instances, the people interviewed had alibis or else they could explain their action at the time of the robbery and killing. In each instance, if the person owned an automobile, it was checked. A broadcast and an APB had been gotten out on the late model Mercury scene at the club, but there had been no answers. No replies had come in on the descriptions of the two suspects. June 17th, we were checking out the last three names on the list. One of the three, a David Adams, listed a rooming house on West 34th Street as his home address. We checked with a landlady, a Mrs. Elvia Collins. Adams? Sure, he lives here, second floor front. What if we could talk to him, ma'am? Sure, I've got no reason to say you can't. Come in. Thank you, ma'am. He's in right now. Went out about an hour ago. Said he had to lead on a job, and I sure hope he gets it. He's a couple of months behind in his rent. That's right. Sit down. Just take any chair. Thank you, Miss Collins. You officers like anything? M- mint on the table there. Help yourself. No, thank you. Adams, give you any idea when he might be back? No, he didn't say right out. I expect he'll be here by six. How's that, man? That's when we served dinner. Mr. Adams hasn't missed more than four meals since he's been living here. Mm. What's this Adams look like? Oh, little man. Sort of like my first husband, little dried-up man. How old would you say he is? Well, I know exactly. Baked his birthday cake last Wednesday. Forty-six candles and one for luck. About how tall would you say, ma'am? Five, six or so. How about his weight? Mm, maybe 120, and that'd have to be soaking wet. He's a real little man. Is he dark or light? I beg pardon? His hair, is it dark or light? Oh, light. A real silky hair, what little there is left of it. Funny the way he combs it. Never could figure it out why a man would comb his hair that way. What's that, ma'am? Well, you see, he's only got a little bit of hair on one side. He lets it grow real long, and then he combs it all the way over the top of his head so it'll look like he's got a lot of hair. He really doesn't, though. It's silly. But he's pretty vain about other things, too. Does he have any friends in the building, Miss Collins? Well, there's his two cousins. They've moved, though. How long ago did they move? Well, let's see. Must have been about two, three months ago. Yes, that much, anyway. Well, what did these two cousins look like, Miss Collins? Can you describe them? Well, you just bet I can. I had a lot of trouble with them, too, always drinking. Uh, first one, he was a big one. Six feet, anyway. Had dark hair. Weighed maybe 200 pounds. Miss Collins, how about his complexion? Dark. Anything outstanding about him? Well, now, what do you mean, outstanding? Well, I mean, anything about him that struck you as being different, maybe? Anything that attracted your attention, something like that? No. Well, what about the number two man? How old was he? Well, he was a little younger. 35 or maybe 37, around there. Well, how tall would you say he was, Miss Collins? Well, he was a little man. Five foot six or seven. How much do you figure he weighed, would you know? 130 pounds or so. 
How about his complexion? Dark, just like the other one. Anything outstanding about him? Scars, tattoos, maybe anything like that? Yes, yes, he had a scar right on the corner of his mouth. Made him look like he was smirking all the time. It was a real dirty look. What are these men's names, Miss Collins? Well, now the big one is called Al Evans. Uh-huh. The little one's name was Bill Evans. They was brothers. Did they have a car? Oh, yes, yes, a late one. It was real pretty. You know what make it was? No. No, I'm sorry, but I can't tell one kind from another. Sure was a nice-looking one, though. A lot of chrome all over it. Do you have any idea where they might be now, where they moved to? No, I haven't. Well, Mr. Adams can probably tell you, though. I see. Oh, uh, that might be him. Now, I'll see. Oh, we'll go with him, ma'am, all right? Are you expecting any trouble? Uh, what's this all about, anyway? Mr. Adams done something wrong? Oh, I do hope not. He's a little man, but he's awfully nice. We'd just like to talk to him. Oh, I sure hope they won't be any trouble. Oh, Mr. Adams. Yes, Miss Collins? Uh, these gentlemen would like to talk to you. Oh? Something I can do for you? Are you uh, David Adams? Yes, sir, that's right. We're police officers, Mr. Adams. My name's Friday. This is my partner, Frank Smith. How do you do? Adams. What is it you wanted? Well, it might be better if we talked in your room. All right, but I still don't see what it is you want. Did you get the job? No, Mrs. Collins, but I've got another lead. Don't worry, I'll be able to take care of that matter by the first next week. Oh, it's all right, Mr. Adams. I understand. This is it. It's not much. Sit down anywhere. Thank you. You want to tell me what this is all about now? What it is that you want with me? Well, we'd like to talk to you about the robbery of the Pink Rat Cafe last April. Manager was killed. The Pink Rat, yes. I worked there a couple of years ago, but I don't think I've been in the place since then. I lost the job. <laughs> Kelby fired me for dropping a load of dishes. Did you have an argument at the time? Well, a little one, yeah. I was sore. He was, too. Wanted me to pay for the dishes. I didn't feel it was my fault. I told him so. He had a few words. Nothing serious, so why? Mr. Kelby was killed in the holdup at the bar. Yes, I know. That's too bad. But you surely don't think I had anything to do with that, do you? Well, that's what we're trying to find out. Well, why do you think I'd have anything to do with it? I haven't been near the place for a couple of years. Well, the way the thing was pulled, the whole M.O. makes it look like it's an inside job. Somebody had to give the layout, tell him that Kelby would be in his office with the money at that time, and all points to somebody that either works there now or who did work there. Yes, but why me? Well, your name was on the list. It had to be checked out. Adams, you got any relatives in town? Not now. I had a couple of cousins. They were out here for a while. What are their names? Alan, Bill, Evans. Mind if we look around your room? No, I got nothing to hide. Go ahead and look around. You won't find anything. Thanks. What is it about my cousins? You figure they had something to do with the thing? Well, we think they might have. Their descriptions match the ones we got from the witnesses. You've been talking to old Mrs. Collins. She's the one who told you about Alan Bell, isn't she? Well, who told us isn't important, Adam. You don't have to admit it, I know. You're a busybody always getting your nose into somebody else's business. Oh, Harpy. Joe. Yeah. Look at here. What's this gun for, Adams? You never know when somebody's going to try to break into the house. It's protection, that's all. Mm. You never had it out of the house, huh? Not since I bought it. It's the thirty-two, though. What are you so interested for? Kelby was killed with a thirty-eight. Well, he was, wasn't he? Seems to me I heard it on the radio or read it in one of the papers. No, you didn't. The caliber of the gun that killed him wasn't released. How'd you know? I must have read it in the paper, like I said. No, this won't work, mister. I think maybe we better talk to you downtown, huh? You gonna arrest me? Just like to talk to you downtown. Let's go. Well, sure, but... I got nothing to hide. Well, you still got to come up with an explanation for knowing about that gun. Description we got matches your cousins. You know about the gun. You got a lot to explain. I don't want to go to jail. It's too bad, Adam. You should have thought about that before you got involved in this. Well, if I tell you, if I help you get the guys that did it, will you give me a break? We can't make any deals. Well, I don't want to go to jail. You can't do anything for me, huh? All we can do is see that the district attorney's office knows that you've helped. But you'll tell him, huh? If I give you a hand? He'll know about it. Okay. I got claustrophobia putting me in a cell and drive me nuts. 
I'll tell you who did the job. More than that. Yeah. I can show you the gun they used. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Listen to what the nation's press has had to say about Chesterfields. Atlantic City Evening Union. Wholesalers and retailers report an extraordinary demand for Chesterfields in both sizes, with sellouts in many instances. Cleveland Press. Dealers everywhere report the big pack sale phenomenal. Last week in Cleveland, some areas reported the long-sized Chesterfield outsold all other brands. And from all over the country... We're getting reports from dealers telling us no product they ever handled has grown so fast in so short a time as king-size Chesterfields. Yes, with a buying public today, high quality for the money is a must. And that's why so many smokers are changing to Chesterfield. First cigarette in America to give you premium quality in both regular and king-size. King-size Chesterfield is exactly the same as regular Chesterfield, except it's larger. Contains so much more of the same tobacco, it gives you a 21% longer smoke. Yet costs very little more. And the tobacco in king-size Chesterfield is of better quality and higher price than the tobacco in any other king-size cigarette. Try Chesterfield. Either way you like them, regular or king-size, they're much milder. Chesterfield gives you the best possible smoke. We took David Adams back to the office and checked the gun with pawn shop records. It was clean. We printed him and checked him through R&I. We took him over to Westlake Park and he showed us the approximate place in the lake where the gun had been thrown. He explained that his two cousins had talked him into helping him with the robbery at the club. He also said that as soon as he found out that there'd been a shooting, he'd washed his hands of the entire affair and told them that he'd have nothing more to do with it. The loot from the robbery had been divided between the two cousins, Adams taking no part of it. It took us two hours of searching before we were able to find the gun. It was turned over to Russ Camp in ballistics. He fired test shots from the gun, and comparison with the death bullet showed that it was the murder weapon. Markings on the shell casing found at the scene of the crime were the same as those left on the test casing. Adams told us that Bill Evans owned a late model Mercury sedan, and that the two brothers had left for St. Louis in the car. He also was able to give us the license number. We checked with DMV, and they told us that the legal owner was a finance company on Crenshaw. The manager there told us that their payments were up to date. They were able to give us a St. Louis address used as a reference by Bill Evans. We called the St. Louis Police Department, gave them a rundown, and asked them to pick up the Evans brothers for us. The witness to the killing was unable to identify David Adams as one of the holdup men. He was taken to the main jail and booked on suspicion of 287 PC. Frank and I waited for word from the St. Louis Police Department. They're all the same, aren't they, Joe? What do you mean? I put any of them in a tight spot and they'll spill all I know to save their skins. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? Adams seems pretty sincere, though. Seems like he does really want to help. Well, we'll know more when we hear from St. Louis. You figure that Adams is telling the truth? I don't know. The story seems to check out about how he laid the thing out for him, uh-huh. showing us where the gun was. Uh-huh. Being that far back in his room, Red, it'd make that part about him not taking any of the money fit. I'll get it. Homicide, Friday. Yeah, I'll take it. Mello. Yeah. Yeah, we've been waiting to hear from you. Did you pick up the Evans brothers? Uh-huh. Yeah, wait a minute. Toss me that pad, will you, Frank? Yeah, here. Thank you. Yeah, all right, go ahead. Uh-huh. What was that again? I didn't... Yeah, I got it. Okay, thanks. Anything we can do for you, give us a call. Yeah, sure, we sure appreciate it. Right, bye. 
What does it? What do you mean? St. Louis checked the address. They'd been there all right, but they left this morning. Any idea where they went? Yeah, the Evans boys told us. They left a forwarding address. Motel out on Ventura Boulevard. Frank and I notified Captain Lorman of the new developments. We talked to the manager of the motel, and she told us that she did have a reservation for June 24th under the name Evans. She told us that they'd be in Cottage 12. In view of the fact that the suspects had not been alarmed, we decided not to put out an APB on the car. We felt reasonably sure that having made the reservations, they'd keep them. But in the event the suspects arrived earlier than expected, a surveillance was placed on the motel 24 hours a day. Sergeants Howard Hudson and Bill Cummings took the period from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Frank and I covered the other 12 hours. Directly across from the motel was a used car lot. We talked to the manager and he gave us permission to sit in any one of his cars while keeping the place under surveillance. As we relieved each other, the police car was taken back to the city hall so there would be no indication that the place was staked out. Four days passed. No sign of the suspects. June 23rd, 4.32 a.m. Charles? Yeah, Mercury sedan. License checks. Two men. Stopping at the manager's cottage. They're ringing a the bell. Uh, yeah, looks like they're signing the register. It must be. There. Who's giving him the key? All right, let's let him get to the cottage. We told her we would. All right. And there's the landlady's signal. Let's go. The story you've just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 4th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Nose, throat, and accessory organs not adversely affected by smoking Chesterfields. First such report ever published about any cigarette. Yes, and it applies only to Chesterfield. A responsible consulting organization has reported the results of a continuing study by a competent medical specialist and his staff on the effects of smoking Chesterfield cigarettes. A group of people from various walks of life was organized to smoke only Chesterfields. For six months, this group of men and women smoked their normal amount of Chesterfields, 10 to 40 a day. 45% of the group smoked Chesterfields continually from 1 to 30 years, for an average of 10 years each. At the beginning and at the end of the six-month period, each smoker was given a thorough examination, including x-ray pictures, by the medical specialist and his assistants. The examination covered the sinuses as well as the nose, ears, and throat. 
The medical specialist, after a thorough examination of every member of the group, stated, quote, It is my opinion that the ears, nose, throat, and accessory organs of all participating subjects examined by me were not adversely affected in the six-month period by smoking the cigarettes provided, unquote. Now remember this Chesterfield report. It's the first such report ever published about any cigarette. Nose, throat, and accessory organs not adversely affected by smoking Chesterfields. Buy Chesterfield either way you like them, regular or king size. Chesterfield gives you the best possible smoke. William M. Evans and Alfred T. Evans were tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. They received life sentences in the state penitentiary. Because David R. Adams had turned state's evidence, and since he was not actually involved in the crime, in the interest of justice, the charges against him were dismissed and he was released from custody. This program is dedicated to the 59th Annual Conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police held in Los Angeles this week. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Virginia Gregg, Jack Crucian. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. These great programs sound off for Chesterfield. Radio. Dragnet, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis show. And every weekday, Arthur Godfrey time. On television, Dragnet, Gangbusters, Arthur Godfrey and his friends in the Perry Como show. Tomorrow, you'll want to sound off for Chesterfields. Because either way you like them, regular or king size, Chesterfield gives you the best possible smoke. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Jack Carson and Jimmy Durante, who will join the mistress's ceremonies to Lula Bankhead on The Big Show. Time now for The Big Show. This program first aired in 1951. Welcome to The Big Show. <laughs> This is Jimmy Wallington, welcoming you to The Big Show, a star-studded extravaganza sent your way with the best wishes of each and every top name on the show. And here is your hostess for the next half hour, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead. You know, there are weeks when we have the most handsome, divine men on the show. And then again, there's this week. <laughs> but we're always delighted to have with us a young comedian who really knows his job. When you give him a script, he gets the meat out of every line. He's always on the ball. What I'm trying to say is he's a real meatball, Jack Cotton. <laughs> Could I answer her if I was clever? 
If I was clever, I wouldn't be on this show. My, he's a big one, isn't he? How tall are you, Jack? Six feet three in my stocking feet. Oh, what are you without your stockings? Barefoot. <laughs> no, how tall are you really, Jack? Well, now, Tulum, maybe this will explain it. Lana Turner only comes up to my shoulder. Ginger Rogers can only come up to my chin. How about me, darling? <laughs> you can come up to my house. <laughs> I'd rather die. <laughs> I don't know of a better way. <laughs> Jack, were you always this tall? No, 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 not when I was born. As a matter of fact, I was only a, a medium-sized child. When I was 15 years old, I grew an extra foot. <laughs> well, that must have been pretty rough on your parents, buying three shoes at a time. As a matter of fact, my parents were quite wealthy. Why, when I went to college, I didn't even go out for basketball. <laughs> I didn't need the money. <laughs> now to change the subject, Jack. But you sing, you dance. I'm surprised you've never been in a play on Broadway. You'll be just right for a musical. Musical? Mm-hmm. Not me. I've had plenty of offers. You know, some years ago, a couple of guys came to me about doing a musical. <laughs> Silly idea for a show I ever heard of. The first place away was a cowboy story. It took place down in Texas or Wyoming or Oklahoma, I don't know. They didn't even have a chorus of girls to open up the show with. They wanted me to open the show and come out on the stage by myself with this cowboy outfit and sing something about, uh, uh, mm, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Imagine those two guys. No chorus or anything. Isn't that rich? <laughs> Yes, they are. <laughs> that musical ran seven years. <laughs> seven years? <laughs> oh, what a beautiful morning! But, darling, darling, think of it another way. With you in it, it wouldn't have run at all. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, little life. That makes me feel much better. That's it. Now, take it easy. May I borrow your hanky? Well, of course, darling. Here you are. There, now, blow. Thank you, Tallulah. Goodbye. Ah, now, come back here. Why don't you put yourself together and sing us a medley of some of the hit songs from some of the hit shows you've turned down? Ah, now, you're making fun of me. <laughs> but honestly, Tallulah, how can you tell if a song's going to be a hit or not? Especially when you examine the lyrics they write. Take an old standard song like, well, uh, like uh, A Peg of My Heart. Listen to this. I love you, I always knew it would be you, since I heard your loving laughter, it's your Irish heart I'm after, peg of my heart, your glances make my heart say, how's chances come be my own? Come make your home in my heart. Well, Jack, that was very pleasant. Yeah, I know. I, I sing like a doll, but... <laughs> Did you get a load of those lyrics? Listen to this. Peg of my heart, come make your home in my heart. I, I know there's a housing shortage, but... Isn't that carrying things a little too far? 
Well, let's see, if it is. Now, I'm Peg, and I've just come to town from Alabama. I, I need a room. And I look in the classified section of the medical journal. I find your advertisement, and I come knocking at your heart. Yes, miss, what can I do for you? Well, I saw your ad in the paper. Is your heart still for rent? What's your name? Peg. Oh, sure, sure. Come on in. Well, I, I want to look around first and see if I like it. Uh, how many rooms are there? Four. Left oracle, right oracle, left ventricle, right oracle. Well, it's a kind of a large apartment for me. Well, it's a six-foot-three-story building. Well, all I really need is two oracles and a valve. Well, there's a valve right down the coronary. But no, all I need is the two oracles. I have no use for the uh, ventricles. Well, I need them. If it wasn't for them, the building would fall down. Well, is it uh, centrally located? Uh, right on the main artery. And there's a wonderful view of the East Liver. But it, uh, it seems rather stuffy in here. Don't you have cross-ventriculation? Oh, it's airy enough. You just follow the rules. No drinking. Uh, I never touch it, sir. I don't care if you touch it, just don't drink it. Gives me heartburn. Well, I hope it's quiet in here. Oh, sure, sure. It's a very quiet neighborhood. There's only a couple of kidneys that live back there. They just float around. Well, is this the only apartment you have? I mean, how about that penthouse up in your head? That's empty, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but I don't want a tenant like you in my hair. Goodbye. And now, darlings, I want you to meet two tenants who moved into my heart a long time ago. James Mason, the distinguished actor of the British cinema and more recently Hollywood, and his talented wife, Pamela. <laughs> Seldom does a short story outlive the span of the magazine issue in which it is printed, but occasionally one comes along that has the power and force which make it timeless. We have such a story tonight. So, without further ado, Mr. and Mrs. James Mason will bring us the Samuel Blast classic, Revenge. It's done. I killed as any man would have killed. I run as any man would run. Beside me... Elsa stares straight ahead at the highway. Her lips are blue and swollen. Her face battered. Her expression is grave, almost serene, almost dead. How long ago was this morning? How many miles back to the glade where the breakfast she had cooked in the trailer had mingled its rich smells with the even richer smells of autumn? Out there, dear. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful? Only you. You still think so? I've never thought anything else. Since the first day you entered my literature class eight years ago. Oh, you looked so stern, so forbidding, so unapproachable. I thought you'd have a foul temper. Aye. <laughs> Were you disappointed? No. I'm glad we had that tire puncture last night. That's a strange thing to be glad about. Only because it stranded us out here like this, away from the trailer camp. Away from everybody and everything. 
In two more days, we'll be home again, and you'll have your classes, and I'll have the children again. I'm very grateful for these few hours, just the two of us. And I'm very grateful for you, Elsa. There'll be other days like this for us, other years, other vacations. Not if you don't go and get that puncture repaired. Is there a town nearby? A place named Campbellton on the map. I think it should be about uh, 12 miles. Good. By the time you get back, I'll have the dishes done and everything in order. You're not going to ride in with me? I'll wait around a messy service station. I have work to do, my good man. And it's such a beautiful spot. But you'll, you'll be here alone. I've been alone before, silly. What could possibly happen to me? What could possibly happen? It seemed that nothing could then. An hour out of the space of a lifetime. An hour to repair a tire. Only an hour. But when I drove back from the town, she wasn't outside the trailer waiting for me, and I knew with a terrible certainty that she'd be there unless something was wrong. Elsa? Elsa, I'm back! Elsa! Elsa! Can't you hear me? Elsa, you hiding in here? Where? Elsa. She was there, huddled on the floor in the corner. She was crying without a sound, the tears mingling with the blood on her bruised and beaten face. She stared at me dully like a beaten animal. And then she started to whimper. He killed me. He killed me. What happened? Good heavens, Elsa, what happened to you? Don't touch me. Don't hurt me. Elsa, it's me. Me, Philip. What happened? Philip. He killed me, Philip. While you were gone, he... He killed me. Who, Elsa? Who did it, Elsa? Who did it? Salesman. Said he was... A salesman. Elsa, get up. Let me carry you to the car. To a doctor. No. No. No, doctor. He called police. Newspapers. The children. Where is the man? Who was he? Salesman. Are you sure? Did he did he carry a sample case? A display? Yes. Case. He was passing on his way to town. He saw the trailer. I told him we didn't need anything. Then he hit me, Philip. He wouldn't stop. He killed me. I washed her face the way I'd washed the face of a child. She stared at me blankly, as though all feeling had stopped, as though the world had stopped for both of us. I changed the trailer tire, and she stood there watching me with those same leaden eyes. When I finished, I took the thick, heavy jack handle and slipped it under the waistband of my trousers. I knew what I was going to do, what I had to do. drive slowly through the town. Do you understand that? Yes. We'll go up and down every street. Every street, every alley, every road. You'll see him. Keep watching and you'll see him. He'll hurt me, Philip. He'll never hurt anybody again. Just watch. Watch. 
faces passed and merged into a red haze. I wanted to scream like an animal, consumed with hatred for a man I'd never seen. A man I was only going to see once. Endless hours and endless streets went by. And then... Batman. Where? Batman. You're sure? Batman. He carried a sample case. And he moved into the lobby of a cheap hotel. I followed him into the elevator. I saw the room number on the tag of the key in his hand. He looked at me once, and I smiled at him. When he got off, I rode up one more floor, then walked down. I found the number of his room. Yeah? May I come in? Sure. You a local merchant? No. I see you're a salesman. That's right. What's your line? I'm an instructor. A father. A husband. Hey. Hey, what's the matter with you, fella? What are you going to do with that thing? I'm going to... Kill you. Kill you. Kill you. Kill you. Elsa knows. But she sits in the car staring straight ahead. The motor hums in a vast silence. Square yellow signs blaze out of the darkness. Danger. Sharp curve ahead. The revenge is behind now. Hours behind. Two hundred miles behind. A dead face. Blood on a cheap rug. A moment for death. A lifetime from a remembrance. Clocks can't be turned back. Nothing can be stopped or undone. A red sign glares out of the night like anger. Like a flame. Gasoline. Why are we stopping, Philip? Gasoline, dear. Oh, gasoline. The attendant is inside, making change for a customer. The man comes out, stuffing a receipt into oh. his briefcase. Oh. That man, Philip. What? That man with the briefcase. Elsa. He's the one, Philip. He did it. That man. Elsa. My God. What have I done? Oh, my God. now without introducing a man we have on our show who is indispensable to any show he's on. Am I right? Right! Oh, you can't have a show without the ready. You've got to have the fabulous James. You can hear him high above the saxes and brass. That's the only way to give the brasses some class. That's the way to give him what appeals to the mass. You gotta give Jimmy a no, 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 no
so right. And we are not going to do without Durante any longer, for here he is singing in my strutaway, the one and only Jimmy Durante. I just got back from Washington today. And really, folks, I've got a lot to say. Now, while I was there, I met the adjutant general. And what he told me put me in a day. Why, for days and days and days and days and days and days for a week. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a guy going on business for himself. <laughs> the adjutant general says, Jimmy, you've been invited to entertain at the White House. He said it'll be a gun of the intelligentsia, the hoi polloi, the 400. The 500, the 600, the 700, the 800. Everywhere you go, critics. <laughs> then he said, Jimmy, what do you do when you're called upon to entertain? I said, Mr. Adjunction General, what'll I do? I'll tell you. Why, in the midst of festivities, I'll get up, I'll get up, and do my spread away. In my cutaway, it's just a hop away, a slide away, and a scram away. And then you skid right down and you go to town with a twist away. Why, when you strut away, this way it's a holiday. You know, I was dancing a strut away with a girl named Suzette when she accidentally backed into a hot radiator. Zip, rep, Suzette. <laughs> it's a dance that's gonna gain great renown. You know, I know a beautiful gal invited me up to her apartment to teach her this dance. I wasn't in the apartment ten minutes when who walks in? Her husband. Kind of perturbed. <laughs> he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm putting on my white tie. I'm putting on my top hat. I'm putting on my top white tie. To do my strut away. Do the strut away. Say, did you ever have the feeling that you wanted to do the strut away? Why the hop away? Then you skid right down and you go to town doing a strut away. Now hop away. Just scram away. Once more. You know, folks, I'm happy to tell you that I just bought a brand new convertible coupe. Boy, what a car and what an invention it's got. You push a button, the top stays where it is, but the bottom falls out. <laughs> so what did I do? I did the crawl away, not the strut away. Did you ever have the feeling that you wanted to do the spread away? The hop away? The spam away? Once more. Now, Chalu? Now, Jimmy. Now, I ain't in the mood. Oh. <laughs> come on, Jimmy. What's the matter? Every time I come on this show, you always got some high class actor playing those dramatic parts, like the James Mason. What about me? I'm as good as them English actors. To mention a few, Robert Donuts, Charles Lafton, <laughs> Betty Grable. Jimmy, Betty Grable's not English. I know, but sometimes when you mention a product on radio, they send you a sample. <laughs> really? Well, well, I didn't know that. Uh, um, Fort Knox. Uh, and he is, too. Oh, I didn't know you were a dramatic actor, Jimmy. Why, I've played in everything Shakespeare ever wrote. Oh, come now, Jimmy, not everything. 
Unless he's written something lately. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do a scene from Shakespeare with you, Jimmy. How about one of those warm, tender love scenes? Just you and I, darling. Okay. <laughs> Come closer, closer. That's it. Go on, Jimmy. Look at me. Look at me, darling, and then you say... Is this a dagma which I see before me? <laughs> How's that? Delusion. <laughs> well, that's very good, Jimmy, but I don't seem to recognize the line in Shakespeare. You don't recognize that famous scene from Mack Truck? <laughs> that's the famous Silkul. That's the famous Sekulo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was one show I could go right through without a spit. <laughs> Get me a doctor. I just split my parsifal. Jimmy, I didn't know that you were so well-versed in the classics. When they wanted somebody to play Cyrano the Bergerac, did they ask me? No. They get some guy named Josephine Ferrer. <laughs> He's a phony. Him and his nose. He wears a falsie. I know just how you feel, Jimmy, about somebody playing a part that you know you're best suited for. Well, I was talking to Mrs. Mason about the same thing. Chalu, if you and I teamed up and went to England, we'd have them rolling in the British Isles. <laughs> we'd be the greatest stars they ever saw. Who knows? The king might even knight us. Well, well, Sir James Durante. Well, well, Sir Tulula Banker. <laughs> what, Jimmy? Let you and I play that scene the Mason just played. That story called Revenge. But, oh, we'll need an extra player to play the salesman. Oh, I know. Maybe Jack Carson might oblige. Jack, darling. Yes, Tallulah? Would you care to take a part in the play that we're going to do? The play the part I'll of... I'll do it. Uh... <laughs> well, wait a minute. Let me tell you what the part Doesn't is. Doesn't matter. I'll take it. I'm not turning down anything anymore. Slime will be a hit. <laughs> well, all right. Now, Jimmy, we're all set for Revenge. We're going to do the sequel. Avenge, son of revenge. <laughs> uh, meditate. Some music, if you please. <laughs> it's done. I killed as any man would have killed. With my embroidery scissors. <laughs> It happened like this. We were riding along in a trailer. I was at the wheel. My wife was driving. <laughs> it was dark out, but I could tell where we were going by following the black line in the middle of the white highway. <laughs> it was a white highway for night driving. <laughs> Suddenly there was a sound of a flat tire. Manager, what are you driving, stupid? <laughs> that was my flat tire speaking. <laughs> I pulled over to the side of the road and jacked her up. Put me down, you fool. <laughs> You'll have to go to town and get another tower. What's the nearest town? Tulsa. I'll start now. Will you be all right here alone? Well, I hope so. Of course, if a burglar breaks in, it'll be quite a shock. He'll get over it. <laughs> well, I'm off to Tulsa. How are you going to get there? I'll walk. It's only 400 miles. 
Well, give me the sign. <laughs> Believe me, I didn't lose my place. <laughs> what could possibly happen? I was only gone four weeks. <laughs> Nothing could happen to her. She can lick any man or wait. <laughs> what a built on that gal. Four short weeks, a fortnight. <laughs> wait a minute. I was only gone half that time. A tootnit. <laughs> when I got back, everything was quiet. I called to her. Mabel. Mabel. No answer. Of course not. That's not our name. <laughs> Geraldine. Selma. Jessica. Sam. Just in case a man answers. <laughs> Did I remember her name? It was Elsie. 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 <laughs> She was lying on the floor, the tears streaming down her bruised and beaten face. Her lips blue and swollen, her eyes red and glazed. Gap! She looks awful in the morning without makeup. <laughs> I spoke to her. Elsie, speak to me. Who done it? Tell me who done it. Speak to me, Elsie. She killed me. <laughs> Philip, she killed me. <laughs> That ain't Elsie, that's the salesman. She gave me such a smash. She just utterly killed me. Why? Why did she do it? I do not know. I simply do not know. I rang the bell and she opened the door. And all I said was, I beg your pardon, is... Is your wife home, sir? She killed me. She just utterly killed me. Would you recognize her if you saw her? I do not know. I simply do not know. Listen, we're going to drive to Tulsa and find her. We're going to drive down every street, every alley, every road in Tulsa. You'll see her. We'll find her if we have to go to every town in Oklahoma. Oklahoma! Oh, no. Oh, what a beautiful morning! Oh. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Six Shooter, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.